1 through 13, 13. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. I'll stand for the bride. Just kidding. This is the wedding passage. Man, how many of you have been to a wedding? How many of you have been to 100 weddings and heard this read at least 99 of those times? Um, I have been guilty of that. I have, I don't know if I preached a wedding where I didn't use 1 Corinthians 13. And, um, and we've all been in, in those weddings. The, the, the reality is this, is this is a great passage. Um, it's good for us to share these in weddings. It's good for us to use these when it comes to thinking about husbands and wives. I mean, that's a good thing for us to do. But the problem is, is that if you've been following along with us in 1 Corinthians, you'll know that probably what we've experienced in weddings is a 1 Corinthians 13 that's preached a little bit out of context because the Corinthian church has been absolutely wild. They've been wild, and then right in the middle of the wildness comes 1 Corinthians 13. What we have been learning as a church through this other church, Corinth, is we've been learning about the spiritual gifts. We've been learning about a group of people that were so obsessed with spiritual gifts to the point that they thought that it meant that they were more connected to God, the types of gifts that they have. So that's a problem, and Paul's actually pointing out that, hey, you have a problem if you think that you are better than someone else because you speak in tongues. Or that even if you think that you are closer to God somehow because God has given you these gifts, therefore, you must have graduated to another degree of spirituality because you have these higher gifts. And here comes Paul right in the middle of this and says something that would have been really shocking not just about husband and wife or friends or mom and dad or whatever. It would have been really shocking and very rebuking to a church that loved the idea of winning the competition of who knows God more. He says this, have them all, have every gift, have every higher gift, do all the things, speak in the tongues of angels. That's new. We hadn't seen that before. Whatever do you mean, Paul, speaking the, the language. Tongues literally means language. 
Uh, Zach Merrill is going to be preaching next week on the gift of tongues. It is a spiritual gift. It means interpretive language. He says, speak with the language that only angels have. You can do all of that, and if you don't have love, you have nothing. Not just you're not, you don't have it all. Not just you have a piece of the puzzle. You actually have no piece of the puzzle at all. Preach to people. I mean, raise people from the dead. Do all kinds of stuff. Miracles. Be the guy that walks around and is the faith healer type of guy. Gets on TV, does whatever it is. Have a ministry. Lead people to the Lord. Do all of that. Have evangelistic gifts and teaching gifts and seem like you really got it. And I'm preaching to myself, man, this scares me half to death. Seem like you really got it. Like, man, the pastor, the whoever it is, they must really know God. They must be so close to God or he wouldn't have given them those gifts. Be that person, but not be loving. You have nothing. You have nothing. This is a big deal. This is a big deal for us. I think today Paul is going to set us straight. God, through Paul, is going to set us straight on what love actually is and also what love isn't. Again, Corinthians were obsessed with themselves. They were worshiping false idols, primarily the false idol of self. And the, the deal is this. Look, it's not like Paul is, there's no bigger advocate for the gifts in the church than the Apostle Paul. Then God through Paul. There's no bigger advocate. This chapter is bookended with Paul saying two things in 1231. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. That's really the first verse of this chapter, if we're honest. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. That's a command of Paul. Earnestly, that means aggressive. Earnest means aggressive. Earnest, be aggressive. Don't be passive with the gifts. Don't be going like, well, I hope it would happen to me, but it's kind of weird. This is aggressive. We'll learn more about this in chapter 14. Earnestly, aggressively desire them. Train your brain and your heart and your mind and your soul to want the thing that feels so uncomfortable to you. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. That's 1231. And then in 14.1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. In a matter of about two paragraphs, Paul tells you this. Desire them. Desire them. It's on the same level as you should desire to do good. Desire them. Especially that you may prophesy. But right in between these two chapters sits 13, and it captures something that is so important. It's not misplaced. It's there for a reason. It captures the heart of the spiritual gifts. And the heart of the spiritual gifts is this. It's love. It's love. In the Corinthians' pursuit of the gifts, they wanted the gifts because it meant that I was close to God. But here's the irony, they had actually missed God. By getting the thing that seemed to make them close to God, they had missed God, and we can tell by their evidence, or the lack of evidence, and that's this, they didn't have love. You can tell when someone is close to God because of really one thing, not do they speak in tongues, do they, you know, not even do they read their Bible all the time, it's are they loving? Are they loving? All right, 1231 says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and then here comes Paul, says, 
and I will show you a still more excellent way. Paul says this, essentially, you think you've arrived at excellence, so you think you are a varsity level starter now because of the way that you present the gifts, and, but actually you're just a rookie. You don't have love. Let me show you something more excellent. 13, one through three, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I, uh, <laughs> this, is a, this is an interesting metaphor because what I think about when I hear this is like all of the toddlers in our church who run around here like crazy, which we love after the service, most of them have devised a plan to get right up here on these drums and just start playing. And it's always noisy. <laughs> Nobody's ever on time. Doesn't sound good. I think about that. What Paul is saying essentially practically, if you don't have love but speak in the tongue of angels, you sound like that. It's chaotic. It doesn't make sense. And you know what? All people are trying to do is get you off the drum set. They don't want you to keep on playing. They're not going, man, we love him. He speaks in tongues all the time, even if he's rude to everybody. <laughs> And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away everything, all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul says without love and with the gifts but without love, you're like a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. If you've been following along with us in 1 Corinthians, you'll know that this town, Corinth, was a Greco-Roman town. And there were lots of temples. There were lots of opportunities. As a matter of fact, part of their identity was in all the temples they had. Temples to every type of thing. God plants a church in the middle of this town surrounded by all this idolatry. And you'll also know that Paul has already corrected them to say, don't go worship in those temples. Essentially, don't eat meat offered to idols, even though there's no power in it you're actually setting a bad precedent for all those that don't know Jesus. You remember that, some of you that have been with us? Go into temples, sit around. You're acting in worship because of your arrogance. You're saying it doesn't matter. I have God, we have the one true God. We can go there and we can worship false idols and it's okay. One of the things, Paul rebukes them, says that's not okay. It's not okay, you know why it's not okay? It's not because there's anything in the food. It's not because there's anything in other gods. We know there's only one God. Paul says that. It's true. There's only one God. You're not going to like be in trouble. You're not going to all of a sudden like get another God's influence in your life. He doesn't, there's no only one God. But what Paul says to them is the problem that we have is that you're forgetting that you have other people around you that were saved out of that lifestyle. And now you're doing whatever you want to do for the sake of your own self ambition. I have God. I don't care what you think. You're silly, you're immature. Let me just show you what it means to be superior. And Paul says, that's wrong. You missed it altogether. You should be thinking about this person. He's saying the same thing here. And one of the things that would happen in those temples would they would signify worship by clanging a gong. And during the middle of those temple services, you would have symbols. And these gongs that were clanged, these noisy gongs, that would say, hey, you're a part of our worship service now. So I, I wanna be clear because this is important. What Paul is saying is this. 
it's not just that love should be added to the service. It's not just that love should be added to your life. It's not just that love is one of the fruit of spirit that you should try to attain. That's true. It's, it's simply this. If you worship the gifts, if you worship your own gifts, say I'm prophetic, I'm whatever I am. If you worship God without love, if you show up to church, if you give, if you tithe, if you whatever, if you do all the church things, but you don't have love, you are not marked by love, what you're actually doing is worshiping a false idol. You are in another temple. It is a noisy gong. You have now participated in the worship of another God. Your God is actually not Jesus at all. You know how we know that? Because the Bible defines love, and it defines it this way. God is love. It's not that love is God. That's what our whole culture thinks. Love, depending on how I define it, is God. It's actually God, Yahweh, Jehovah, Jesus, is love. We cannot have love, we cannot define love, we cannot know love if you don't know God. We're gonna get into that more in a minute. Love is the sign of true worshipers. Parade your gifts around like a badge of supremacy with disdain towards your brother or the outsider is worshiping a false idol. Let's look at what he says here. He says, I can understand all mysteries which is wisdom. I can have all knowledge, which is intellect, study. I can have all faith, steadiness, belief. These are all good things. If I have all of that without love, I am, I can't say this, this is absolute. I'm not just lacking, I am nothing. Doesn't matter what I've thought, said, learned, gotten degrees in, or how long I've been a church member. Without love, it's a wash. I could give away all I have, he says, which is generosity. That's a good thing for a Christian to do. I could deliver my body to be burned, martyrdom. Can you imagine if you see a person, you go, that guy has literally given away everything he's ever owned. How close to God is he? Or if I look at some of my heroes of the faith, Jay Hudson Taylor, I mean, some of these guys that have been missionaries have given up their bodies, martyrdom. I look at them and go, man, surely they're going to be like first in line when the Lord comes back to the pearly gates. They don't, it doesn't matter. Without love, I have nothing, I gain nothing, he says. Do you understand the gravity of what's happening here? Suffice to say that God is serious about love. So, in order to know what love is, we have to define it to know what we're striving for. And yeah, it's possible to let the world around us define love. Lord knows they try. Lord knows you try. After all, that's what everybody says that we need. We need love. I don't even want to quote the Beatles here, but they've got a whole song about all you need is love. I don't even want to quote Tina Turner. So I'm not. <laughs> we need a better definition. We cannot just go off of what 2023 tells us what love is because love, along with coolness, along with identity, changes with the wind. 
We need ground, concrete love. What is it? How can we know it without the one who invented it? Here's love defined by the Bible. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things and it believes all things and it hopes all things and endures all things. What a definition. Our culture loves the idea of love so long as it's defined by everyone at all times in their own way, depending on how they feel in the moment. That seems a little sketchy. And also, so long as it allows us to all live our best lives as our truest selves, no matter who it endangers and no matter what they think about us and no matter what changes in me. My best life and my truest self could change depending on my mood that day. That's, and that's not new, by the way. Let's not be, let's not just all of a sudden think that that's a new concept. This has been since Genesis 3. This has been the reality of mankind. That you define love, you define godliness, you define godship in your life. And it's defined based on how you feel in the moment. So let's compare and contrast. Bible love versus culture love. The Bible says love is patient and kind It does not envy or boast. Sounds pretty good. The love of culture is actually impatient and demanding. It gives me what I want when I want it. And if it doesn't give me what I want when I want it, you know what it is? It's not just unloving. You are hateful. You hate me because you don't give me what I want when I want it. The Bible says love is patient and kind. It also says that love is not arrogant or rude. I think we could probably both agree on that in principle. Culture and Bible. (laughs) But terms need to be defined. It also says that love does not insist in its own way. The Bible, again, we're comparing biblical love to world love. And here we arrive at love does not insist on its own way. Full stop. I don't know how we're going to get there together. You know, it's just not at this point. We think something different about love than you do. It's not irritable. Come on now. It's not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. At this point, culture, man, we're striking out. And then love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, which is the nail in the coffin endures all things even your anger at me even your bad attitude towards me even your difference in opinion or voting habits that's the nail in the coffin biblical love is way different and to be honest cultural love lost out on this argument a long time ago biblical definition of love seems a whole lot more like love than the counterfeit in this world. Patient, kindness, not envious or arrogant. But here's the other thing we need to be honest about. We read the definition of love. We sit in a wedding service. I just did one and this was one of the texts that we talked about. 
And we sit there and we hear the pastor talk about love and define it in this way. And it's almost like, it is for me at least, it's almost like all of a sudden everybody's forgetting how to face reality. And they're going, yeah, that's love. That's great. That's right. Okay, next. (laughs) We should all be never boastful. We should all be never resentful. None of us should ever insist in our own way. That's, that's true. We should do that. What I've witnessed is a lot of young married couples that they get married for the first time and they're young and they're in love and they're looking at each other wide-eyed and they're going, man, we're totally going to do this. We are totally going to do this. We are going to be these people to perfection. What you've got is that couple doing that or anybody else maybe that was married in the last three months or that's just dating and getting married, and you've got a whole bunch of other people that have been married a long time, <laughs> and their eyes are a little bit more droopy than those two, and they'll think to themselves, probably even nudge you, you know what, you remember what it was like when we were just that, like that? <laughs> when we thought we could totally do 1 Corinthians 13 all together, perfect in every way? How many of you today would say that you score high on this litmus test? Never insisting on your own way. Come on now. I, let's be real, man. Look, I, I want to invite you guys. I know that like church culture here is we sit, we listen to the pastor. We hope he doesn't say anything crazy. But it's church typically for us is like the, the last place to be totally vulnerable and honest when actually it's designed to be the place of vulnerability and honesty. How many of you scored high on this litmus test of love? First Corinthians 13, you'd be like, Pastor, actually, I feel like I do pretty good all the time. You can ask my wife, ask my husband. That's where the trouble starts. You might feel like you do good. You start asking them. Anybody out there never rude or arrogant? Anybody never irritable? Anybody that never laughs out of somebody else making a fool out of themselves? I've already failed three or four times. How many bear all things? Most people would throw their hands up at this point and just say, well... I guess I'm not loving, which makes sense, but we need to come to a realization that's so important is that you weren't made to inhabit these traits naturally. You're not. You're actually born into brokenness. You're born into sin. You weren't made to inhabit them. We want this. I want to be this. I have, if I'm being totally honest with you guys, I have found myself, I, keep, I told our prayer team last night in a prayer meeting, I've just been grumpy for like three, four weeks now. I don't know why. Somebody explained that to me. I, I mean, my life, I'm doing okay, you know? I have been just, my attitude, I've been grumpy. It's like, why can't I just wake up and be loving? Why? What is it in me that's so messed up? What is so bent and broken that keeps me from doing these things? I don't want to be boastful or arrogant or rude. I don't want to insist in my own way. And I find myself a lot of time just crossing my arms, just going like, well, nobody even cares about me. I don't even have the swimming pool that I want in my house. I don't even live on a lake or on the beach. God doesn't care. This is what I do. I mean, how silly. Talking to you now, I'm like, what? I should not still be a toddler in my emotions. But I still am. What is that in us? Here's the reality of love. Love is not a feeling. Love is not 
an emotion. Love is not a mood. Love is not a vibe. Love is a person. Love is a person. 1 John 4, 7 through 10, Beloved, let us love one another. It's a good command. Here's why. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because why? God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word means payment. That is love. God is love. Do you understand what this means? God is himself love. It's not that he has a lot to give. It's not that he has more to give. It is that all love is defined and created by and through God. You cannot have true love without knowing God. Not that we have loved, but that he has loved us. Christ lived all of 1 Corinthians 13 to perfection. I can love you because I belong to the one who loves us and showed it perfectly on the cross. John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That sums it up. You may think that you're loving. You may have actually folded into the current of the whole world that says all we need is love. That's true. But once we define love by the Bible, then we go, All we need is the thing that we don't know how to do, which means this. Who does know how to do it? Who knows how to do it? And then it goes to this. Not all we need is love, but all we need is God. Because why? God himself defines love. To try to define love outside of God is absolute blasphemy. Love is not anything less than God. It is not anything more than him. Love is not God. God is love. He himself is love. We cannot truly love someone without God. Christ, at the center of our relationships, equals love. That's why it does us no good to try to love someone simply based on how we feel for them. While feelings are a real thing and they're a real part of life, the problem is is this, is that they they change with the wind. So... (laughs) Feelings and emotion cannot be the catalyst of the definition of love. After all, the way that Paul defines love, the first thing that he says, the first attribute attributed to love is this. Love is patient. You ever met someone who wanted to be patient with somebody else? You ever met someone who said, I feel like everything that you're doing is great and perfect and right on time and I feel perfectly for you. So I'm just gonna be patient just because I think it might be a good thing, although I don't need to be patient. Patience by definition means you don't feel like hanging on. You You feel like moving on. Patience by definition for love to be defined as love is patient. Man, I don't even wanna talk about this, but if I could get me in the men and women in this church, in your marriages and in your life and your relationships to, to see this as a true virtue, to go, 
wait a minute, love is not demanding. Love is patient. When you look at your spouse and you go, I want you to be different than the way that you are. Well, then what? It's like, here's a book, read it. By next Tuesday, we'll have figured this out. You snore, I'm going to get you a machine, you know, whatever it is, we'll get it done, taken care of. No offense to all the snorers in the room. You're angry, you're bitter, you have trust issues, you have whatever it is, you're insecure, your identity, your love does not insist on its own way. Do you understand what I'm saying? Love is patient. It is not an emotion. Love is a person. We see it in Jesus. It's also, a fe- it's also eternal. Love is eternal. Verse 8 says this, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, hang on to this, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. We're going to talk about that. Paul is looking towards eternity now. And he's saying everything else, all the gifts that you think would point you towards eternity, that would make it look like you have the inside track on what eternity is, tongues, prophecy, whatever, all of that's gonna pass away. You know why? He's saying here, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When Christ returns, there will be no need for the spiritual gifts. We will have the one who perfectly embodies them right with us forever. And here's the bigger point. And he says it in verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know just in part, not fully. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Christ fully knows you. He formed you. I will know at some point, I will see him fully. My faith will become sight. There will be no need for the higher gifts because the point of the gifts are to point us to Jesus Christ. So you're starting to see how this connects together. The gifts, the point is to point us to Christ. One day Christ will come. He will come back fully. I will fully know him, even as I am fully known now by him. I'm not all-knowing. I don't even know myself. One day he will return. It'll be a done deal. The point is this. The gifts are here on earth to point us to him to get us to that day, to show the love of Christ. So you're starting to see it doesn't make any sense for you to use the higher gifts in competition to your brother. The whole point of them is the love of Christ. When he comes back, there will be no need. Karl Barth said it this way, because the sun rises, all lights go out. When God comes back fully in glory, There'll be no need. It'll just be brighter than the sun. We'll have all the things that point us to him in him. At first glance, upon seeing someone speak in tongues or hearing them prophesy, you might think they're contributing to eternity in a superior way, but actually it's the act of love that would be the better response and would let us know better who's actually got a view towards eternity. Love points us to Christ in a unique and profound way Because, again, Christ is love. Love never ends. It's eternal. Paul says, as for prophecies, they'll pass away tongues. And there's also a hundred other things. Marriage, it will pass away. 
You are not designed to be married for eternity. Friendships, all of that, there's one institution that will last throughout eternity. That's the institution of the church. God will come back for her. Christ. This is why the Bible says in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives. Love stays with us forever. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And this is why it doesn't say husbands prophesy and speak in tongues to your wives as Christ prophesied and spoke in tongues to the church. Are you starting to see how silly it is? When gifts replace love, it actually speaks to our immaturity. Love is eternal, it never ends. Love on this earth is a mark of a Christ follower, not spiritual gifts. And finally this, love is the mark of maturity. Right in, this, in the middle of this chapter is a verse that we love to use. Um, we love to quote and kind of, I think, pull it out of context a little bit, which is this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put up childish ways. And true enough, I guess in some way that can mean like, okay, now it's time to have a 401k, you know, time to pay your mortgage. You need to do all this stuff, by the way, time to pay your mortgage. I need to, I need to learn how to change a flat. When I was a child, I thought like a child, but now that I'm a man, I put away childish things. I need to learn to be responsible, balance a checkbook, you name it, whatever. All good stuff. I think those are some marks of maturity. But it's interesting that Paul put this in right in the middle of this chapter on love. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. To speak languages, tongues. I thought like a child, wisdom, knowledge. I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put up childish ways. There's no way that Paul is saying that the gifts of the Spirit are childish, but what he is saying is the core, the heart of the gifts, if it's not rooted in love, you are immature. You are immature. Love is the mark of maturity. How many of us in the room today feel like we're mature for other reasons, but we don't grade our maturity on our love? And I, it would be easy for us to say, well, you know what, Pastor, I don't, I may not sound loving or look loving, but in my heart, I feel pretty loving. The other problem is this, is that love is in action. Love speaks in action. Love is not a personality trait. Love is not gonna be found on the Enneagram scale. It has nothing to do with how scared or not scared you are of public speaking or whatever. Love is an action. And what Paul would say here is that anything that doesn't act in love is actually immaturity. And I'm telling you, I say this all the time, there, I am on the front row preaching to myself right now. Love acts. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not based on what my mood is that day. It acts because that's the mark of maturity in a Christian. It's entirely possible to live your whole life thinking you're a grown man or woman by crossing off some internal list and never actually make it out of infancy because you have not grown to be more loving. Love is a person, it's in Christ. Love is not a feeling. Love is an action. Love is a mark of maturity and love never passes away. It's eternal. And he concludes with this, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But just to be clear, out of faith, hope, and love, there is one that's greater and that is love. 
Remember what Jesus said? He said the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Now, what would make God himself, who wrote the Bible, what would he make what would make him compare another thing to that one? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's because of how important it is. The second is like it. Love your neighbor. How? How do we do that? As yourself. Stop thinking about yourself more than you think about the people around you. Love them. Be loving. What is our response? What is our response to cultural issues? What is the church's response to things that we go, this, I know that this is wrong. What is our response to people who act wrong? What is our response to people who spit in the face of a church? What's our response to them? Are they our enemies? Are they? Is that the response of the church to go like, well, we got a bunch of enemies out there and what we need to do is we need to draw our sword and define the terms enemies. No, you know why? Because what you have done and what I have done is we have forgotten the fact that you were an enemy of God. And what actually happened to you was not that you decided to all of a sudden be friends with God. You're like, that's a pretty good career move, I think. Be a Christian. Believe that I should eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus. Sounds smart. Sounds like a good career move. Good. That's probably how I'll make more friends in 2023. No way. God came and made you his friend. So for everybody in the world, do we look at them as enemies? No. The mark of maturity, the mark of the gospel is to go, man, these people are not my enemies. They are spiritually enemies of God, but they're not mine. God actually put me in their life so I could share the good news of the love of God with them. Let's be people marked by love. I want in our church... We believe, we are continuationists in this church. We do not believe that the gifts have ceased. We don't believe they ceased with the apostles. We don't believe that they ceased with uh, the canonization of scripture. We believe that they have continued. We believe that. We want to be people who prophesy. I wanna be people in this church that are not scared of the Holy Spirit, but that have prayer languages. We want that, man. We want the healings. We want the power of the Holy Spirit, the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit to be manifest in our church services and in our lives. That's what we want. But I promise you this, we do not want them to replace knowing and loving each other. We have to be a church that strives for love. We have to be, because without that, you're just a noisy gong. You actually stop being a church at all. You start being a group of people that are worshiping the gifts and not actually worshiping Jesus. Let's stand together.